title of the message here this morning is Behold the Lamb. But I always remember a story told about a, the young son of a Baptist preacher who was in church one morning when he saw for the first time baptism by immersion. And seeing that baptism for the first time made quite an impact on that youngster. I mean, he was full of all kinds of questions afterward that he peppered toward his dad. What did the baptism mean? Uh, who was eligible for it? And did all churches do it the way that daddy did it where he brought them under the water? Well, the boy's dad did the best that he could to answer all those questions, and he explained to his young son that as Baptists, what that meant is that they baptized with full immersion, taking them completely under the water. But the Methodist friends down the road, well, they did sprinklings as did other denominations. Well, that little boy continued to think about that. The next day, he decided that uh, he was going to do what he saw his daddy do. And so he began to look around his house for candidates uh, ready for baptism. And lo and behold, there was the house tomcat. And so he decided he was going to practice baptizing on the cat. And uh, he finally got it cornered, and he brought it into the bathtub. And he was fighting with that cat. It clawed him. It hissed. And about at the moment when the young boy was going to take the cat under the water, the uh, pastor walked into the bathroom. He saw that scene. And uh, the cat was fighting with him, and he couldn't get the cat under. He got him about halfway, and then the cat jumped out, and the boy was disgusted. He threw his arms out, and he said to the cat, Fine, if you want to be a Methodist, go ahead and do it. <laughs> really and truly, there are a few reasons why baptism is so important. First off, it is one of the two ceremonies that Christ gave us that we are commanded to observe as his followers uh, the other, of course, is the Lord's Supper. Uh, second, baptism is important because it's directly tied to the gospel message. Every time that a believer comes forward, professes Christ, and goes under the water and comes up, they are preaching the gospel in miniature and through symbol. And then thirdly, baptism is important because if you study church history, it has been the cause of much confusion and division within the church over the years. And as I have said many times before, as Baptists and as believers in general, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it and be able to back it up with Scripture and why we practice and believe the things that we do. You don't hear much preaching and teaching on the subject of baptism, and I, I want to get into some of that today as we look in John chapter 1. Because here we have one of the first examples of baptism that we read about. Now, John does not record Jesus' baptism. He leaves that for Matthew, Mark, and Luke to do. But uh, what we do see here in John chapter 1 is John the Baptist making his ministry known, and he's preparing Israel for the coming of Christ, and he's baptizing followers there in the Jordan River. So here in John 1, we meet this peculiar character with a thundering introduction to Jesus. He is John the Baptist. And not only does he teach us a lot about baptism, but he teaches us how to be a bold witness for Christ. And so in this message, what we're going to do is examine the message and the ministry of John, and we're going to see how he challenges us even today. So if you're taking notes, I want you to notice, number one this morning, the message that John preached. The message John preached. 
Now, you might say that John the Baptist had a two-fold message. He was one part herald and another part hellfire and brimstone. If he were alive today, there is no doubt that the preaching of John would be rejected by this snowflake generation. He was not uh, politically correct. Uh, he was often stepping on toes. In fact, uh, he had the distinction of being thrown in jail. And yes, he even lost his head because of his message. The Pharisees didn't like him. Herod didn't like him. Uh, the only one who garnered respect from him was Jesus. And we're going to catch up with John now, sometime after Jesus' baptism. And his ministry is now creating quite a stir as he's down there in that rustic environment by the riverbank of the Jordan. He's baptizing folks, preparing their hearts and spirits for the coming of Messiah. The Jews have become curious about him, and they have sent a delegation to inquire, uh, where are you getting your authority to preach this message and to baptize folks? So we're going to notice a message of prophetic revelation. Notice what the Bible says, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And so they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, and he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one who you do not know, even who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now, as I mentioned a little bit ago, John the Baptist is an important figure. He is one of the most eccentric people that we meet in the Bible. Technically, you would say that he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, it had been 400 years since the days of Malachi, since the last prophet of God had come on the scene and spoken. And now John the Baptist is breaking that 400 years of silence. In fact, if you keep reading a little bit further, in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11, Jesus actually said that John the Baptist was the greatest man to have ever lived. That's quite an endorsement. Now, we see here in John that the Jews had come to John the Baptist to ask under what authority was he doing these things and what identity did he claim for himself. First they asked him, are you Elijah? This was based off of a belief from the final Old Testament prophet Malachi, in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, which actually predicted the return of Elijah before the end times or the day of the Lord. And John said, no, I'm not Elijah. Now, according to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 4, John did model himself off of Elijah. He dressed like Elijah, clothed in that rustic camel's hair and 
eating wild locusts and honey, he would have fit in very well in the Asheville scene, wouldn't he? he he's uh, the slave to fashion, and he's also eating all this holistic alternative food, so he would have fit in perfectly here, at, at least on the outside. But in Luke one seventeen, the Bible also says that John's preaching and John's power in his prophetic ministry was in the spirit and power of Elijah. So you could see why they would have connected that and thought that maybe he was uh, Elijah come again. But John said, no, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. Then they make a mention here in the text of the prophet, quote, unquote. Well, that was actually a reference to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18. There Moses was speaking in which Moses predicted the coming of a prophet who would literally speak the word of God. Now, that was a prophetic passage about the coming of Jesus, and so that did not apply to John either. But John cleared up all this confusion and all this mystery when he identified himself. We read that he quoted from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40 and verse 3 there, uh, where he says, I'm just a voice of one crying in the wilderness, whom Isaiah spoke of. And so that's his ministry of prophetic revelation. He is taking the title of, of harbinger, of forerunner to the Messiah. And John's job description was like that of a spiritual bulldozer, if you will. He was there to clear a path so that the Messiah could come forward and the Messiah could take center stage. Now, what's the application of this today? Well, I would say we need prophetic voices like John the Baptist today, don't we? We still need prophetic voices, still need folks, men and women, who will call the lost to the Lord, men and women who understand the times and the seasons, who know that the hour is late and the need is great. He was preaching about the first coming of Christ. We have a message today to preach about the second coming of Christ, that he's on his way, that the time is at hand, and we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to be different? John the Baptist was different. I'm not talking about being different in an obnoxious way, or in a weird way that's going to turn people away from the gospel. But I'm talking about are we willing to be bold like John was? Are we willing to be consumed by one message? And that is the message of Jesus Christ. So he had a message of prophetic revelation. But then I also want you to see he had a message of personal repentance. A message of personal repentance. Now we're going to hit the pause button right here in John. And I want to move over to Matthew, because in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we read what John was preaching about. Now, I told you that the first part of John's message was, Messiah's coming, make way for the king. The second part of his message was, well, make sure your heart is right with the Lord. Look what Matthew 3, 1 and 2 says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was not exactly the most creative uh, preacher, you might say. He had a one-point message. <laughs> repent. That was it. Now, that word, repentance, it's not a popular word anytime. Not in John's time, not in modern world. That word, repentance, it's actually a Greek word that is the word metanoia. It comes from the combination of two words, meta, meaning change, and nuos, meaning mind, so literally what repentance means is a change of mind. And so repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. 
I've often described it like this. It's a 180-degree turn off of the broad way of destruction and onto the straight and narrow path that leads to life. It's I'm going down this way into sin and destruction. I hear the gospel. I respond to it. I repent of my sin. I turn and I walk toward Jesus Christ. It's more than regret. It's more than remorse. Repentance is not just confessing sin. It is also forsaking sin. So when John is at the riverbank and he's calling people to repentance, he's trying to get their heart and their spirit right for the coming of Christ. And he's asking them to walk away from their life of sin and selfishness. Now, there are at least three attributes of repentance that I can see. The first attribute of repentance is conviction. Conviction, that is a signpost planted in the heart by the Holy Spirit that tells us danger, turn around now, you're going the wrong way. And isn't the convicting power of the Holy Spirit a gift to you and me? Wasn't for the Holy Spirit who pricks our heart and helps us to know that we're sinners and that we have offended God, we wouldn't know that we were lost. But the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, that's the first part of repentance. The next part of repentance is not just conviction, but contrition. And contrition is a sincere brokenness over the past sins and an earnest desire to take a new path of righteousness. So contrition comes when you feel that brokenness and you feel that need to turn to Christ because you understand the depths of your sin and the greatness of Christ as a Savior. And then the third mark of true repentance, conviction, contrition, and change. That means taking steps of obedience to be compliant with God's Word. And friend, listen to me. Repentance doesn't mean anything if you keep doing the same old sin over and over and over again. I understand we all struggle. We're all in the flesh. But true repentance is about leaving that sin, turning from it, and not going back to it. There's a great story that Billy Graham told about repentance. It happened in 1954. Uh, Billy Graham was over in London. He was over there in England uh, at the famous Herringay Arena. He was giving one of his most famous crusades over there. Thousands had flocked to see uh, Dr. Graham. Uh, now the Brits, they really poked fun at Dr. Graham. They were lined up, the skeptics and the critics. And the news media had branded him Silly Billy. Uh, they thought that here was some kind of hellfire and brimstone a country preacher from the United States, what a novelty he was. And, uh, but they didn't know that when Billy Graham came, he brought the power of God's Word and the Holy Spirit uh, invaded that, that country and God did a great work there. But Billy said that on the, one of the very first nights that uh, as he was sitting there preaching, uh, up, up close and up front there were two men that were uh, seated beside each other. One man was a medical doctor and... Uh, they were kind of giving Billy a hard time. They were kind of accosting him uh, during his preaching. Well, as Billy Graham got worked up, he started really getting into his message. And the power of God began to fall in that arena. And uh, pretty soon you could hear a pin drop. I mean, good old-fashioned Holy Spirit conviction fell in that auditorium. And people were under some real Holy Ghost preaching. Well, when the altar call was given and the invitation was offered... That doctor and that other man who'd been sitting close up front, uh, who'd been ridiculing Billy, got up and were some of the first ones to come forward to receive Christ. And Billy Graham tells a story that uh, when they got up, 
One of the men said to the other who was a doctor, he said, I don't know about you. He said, but I'm going down there to give my heart to Jesus Christ. And the man next to him replied, he said, yes, and I'm going with you. And by the way, here's your billfold because while you didn't know it, I was a pickpocket and I picked your pocket during that message. But I've come under such conviction, I'm giving it back to you. And those two men came down and got saved at that Billy Graham crusade. Now, that's a picture of repentance, right? Now, later, Billy Graham wrote about our need to repent, and he bemoaned the fact that repentance had fallen out of most Christian vocabulary. And a lot of preachers don't even preach that word anymore. Here's what Billy said. He said, quote, Repentance is a forgotten word in today's evangelism. We have preached the dignity of humanity rather than our depravity. We have declared our goodness rather than our wickedness. Gone is the mourner's bench and the tear-stained cheeks of godly sorrow for sin. And gone is the joy in heaven over wanderers returning to the Father's house. And haven't you noticed that today in a lot of the cotton candy preaching, as it were, a lot of it's fluff, a lot of it's feel-good. There's not much preaching on the hard things of sin and calling folks to repentance just as John the Baptist did. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, repentance was John's message. It was Jesus' first message in Mark 1.15. It was Paul's message when he went to Athens and he preached to the philosophers on Mars Hill. He said, truly, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now God is calling all men everywhere to repent. Preachers today who have erased repentance from their vocabulary think they are being clever. They think they are accommodating modern ears. But friend, if you don't have the word repentance in your vocabulary, you can't call yourself much of a Bible preacher. That's just the truth of it. Repentance is the exit ramp off the highway to hell. And friend, every revival that has been experienced in this country has come with a contrite spirit, with repentance, and with brokenness over sin. Another election cycle cannot save the United States. A vaccine won't save the United States. A better economy is not the answer to our problem. The only hope that we have as a nation is repent. It's the only way to restoration. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, that's repentance, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. I still believe that verse, don't you? I still believe that verse is in the Bible, and it's one that we need to return back to. Well, as we study John the Baptist, we see, number one, the message that he preached. Then I want you to see, number two today, the ministry that John practiced. The ministry John practiced. Now, read with me very quickly, verse 28. These things took place in Bethany, Across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now keep in mind that in John's context, baptism had a different meaning back then than it does in the church today. For instance, in the ancient times, baptism was actually reserved for Gentiles who wanted to convert and become Jews. John was unique in that he was baptizing the Jewish people who wanted to be prepared for the coming of Christ, for the Messiah's arrival. Today, the church practices baptism, but we do it for a completely different set of reasons than what John was doing here. And I want to spend some time on that, because 
I can't remember the last time I actually heard a message on baptism and explain why Baptists do it the way that they do and why it's important. So I just want to touch on this very briefly as we go through. Let's look at the mandate of baptism. The mandate of baptism. Consider the ministry of Jesus, if you will. Jesus began and he concluded his ministry with baptism. Now, before his ascension back to heaven, Jesus gave us that great commission. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, look at what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, here it is, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know the reason why we practice baptism is because Jesus commanded it? <laughs> it's right there. Non-negotiable. It's black or white. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says. So if you're sitting at home and you're listening to this message and you know you've been saved but you haven't been baptized, friend, what are you waiting for? Make 2022 the year that you come forward and you say, Pastor, I want to be baptized. I want to be in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and I want my witness to be made known to the world that I have decided to follow Jesus. That's the mandate of baptism. But then I also want you to look very quickly at the meaning of baptism. You know, I've, I've heard it mistakenly repeated among church people that baptism is a symbol of your sins being washed away. And that's really not what baptism is a picture of at all. That's a misunderstanding. I guess it's been taught down through the years. We really don't have to wonder what the true meaning of baptism is because it's spelled out in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. We'll get to that verse here in a little bit, but if you go through the book of Acts, you'll notice that there was a clear pattern established it was always belief in Christ and then baptism. In other words, baptism was an outward sign of an inward reality and it was reserved only for those who have been saved, those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to me. Getting baptized doesn't make you saved. It shows that you already are saved. This is one reason why we in the Baptist church, we don't perform infant baptism. I know there are other denominations that practice christening or they practice infant baptism, but let me ask you something. Can an infant place faith in Jesus Christ? Can an infant intellectually understand the gospel and give their heart and life to Jesus? Can they even have a memory of being baptized or sprinkled when they are just a few days old? No. So none of all of that's just pure ritual. It has, in my belief, no real meaning. But baptism should always follow salvation and not precede it for the same reason that we wear a wedding ring after we've been married and not before. Now in Romans 6, 4, listen to the way Paul explains the meaning of baptism. He says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, Here's what baptism is a picture of. Death, burial, and resurrection. Just as Jesus lived and died, was buried and rose again, so too, that's the pattern of the believer. We died to our old self going into the water, and we come up new in a new walk and a new life in Jesus Christ. So if you think about it, baptism is kind of like a liquid tomb. It's a funeral service, if you will. When the believer is baptized, the old man, the old woman is pictured as dead and below the water. And then the new person is raised up to walk in Christ. That's the meaning of baptism. That's the mandate of baptism. But then I also want you to see the method 
of baptism. An old friend, the amount of blood and ink that has been spilled over the centuries <laughs> over the method of baptism. Now that word baptize, we read it there in verse 28. It's actually an untranslated word. It's, it's taken directly from the Greek manuscripts. The Greek word is baptizo. And the original word baptizo, it literally means to immerse. So if you're doing anything else besides immersion, just by definition, it's not baptism. If baptism, by the way, were just sprinkling or just pouring, then why was John doing this in the Jordan River <laughs> where there had to be plenty of water enough to get somebody completely under? Friend, let me be honest with you. There is no way you can honestly read this text and twist it to mean sprinkling or to mean pouring. That's just not what it, you can't get it out of, out of this text. Moreover, every instance of baptism recorded in the New Testament is by immersion. And the meaning and the method are always linked together. If you change the method, then you destroy the meaning. God has a clear picture that he wants people to see here through going down and coming up. And when you disrupt that method, you destroy the meaning. I love what Adrian Rogers said about this. Listen to what he wrote. He said, quote, If you were the devil and you could take any message out of the church, but only one, which would you want to take out? Well, the gospel. What is the one ordinance that teaches the gospel over and over again? It's baptism. If we depart from baptism the way it was originally practiced by Christ and the apostles, then we have rendered it impotent, he says. Satan has done a slick job on the church to take this wonderful picture of the gospel out of many of our churches. A few years ago, I'll tell you a funny story. I've got some really good baptism stories. I don't know why when things go wrong, it seems like they always seem to happen uh, when it's time to, to do baptisms. But a few years ago, I probably had about six young people that I was going to be baptizing. They were all in the youth group. And uh, it was a cold, cold winter morning. And we are fortunate enough to have a baptism with a heater. Well, uh, the deacon who was responsible that week for filling the tank and turning the heater on, somehow it slipped his mind. I'm not going to get specific, but his name rhymes with Doug Bailey. Uh, but he was supposed to turn the heater on, and he didn't. And it was a chilly, chilly morning. And we, I got up there to do the baptism, and I put my first big toe in that tank. And I'm telling you what, that, that water had to be 50 degrees. It was bone-chilling. And uh, I kept telling the kids, I said, kids, I said, this water is really cold. I said, uh, you're going to remember this for the rest of your life. And I got the first kid down, and he jumped in. He kind of got down in the water, and he, was, he, he started to chatter a little bit. And he looked up at me, and he said, he said, Pastor Derek, he said, don't take long to baptize me. Just do it real fast. <laughs> and I gave him the standard answer that I usually give. I'll hold you down long enough until I can hear you say tithe under the water. But anyway, that's the ministry that John practiced. That's the message that John preached. And then number three, I want you to see today as we close, the Messiah that John pointed to. The Messiah that John pointed to. Now, keep in mind, as we pick up verse 29 and following, Jesus is emerging from 40 days in the wilderness. He has successfully trounced the devil and every temptation that he has thrown at him. 
The angels had just ministered to Jesus. His physical strength and his stamina has been renewed. And there is something of a magnetism to the presence of Jesus as he comes back to the Jordan River, standing there in that waist deep water. You can picture John there with those fiery eyes. As he looks upon the horizon, he sees Jesus coming toward the river bank. And in verse 29, he gives this great declaration. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Jesus pointed to John, excuse me, John pointed to Jesus in two important ways. First off, verse 29, we read it, He forgives our sin. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world. Now keep in mind the context as you are reading this. The Jews had been slaughtering Passover lambs for hundreds of years. And now Jesus comes, he's the ultimate fulfillment of that Old Testament picture. If you go back all the way to Genesis chapter 22, there Abraham is on Mount Moriah, he's got Isaac. They get up there to make the sacrifice, and Isaac asks the question, "Where is the lamb?" And now 2,000 years later, John the Baptist answers that question here in verse 29. There he is. It's Jesus Christ, God's Son, who takes away the sin of the world. He would be the one who would finally deal with not only Israel's sin problem, but notice that little phrase, the sin of the whole world. Praise God for that. Now in Exodus 12, if you go back and study that chapter, that's the chapter where the children of Israel are leaving Egypt. That's the night of the Passover, the last plague that's coming upon the people. And in Exodus 12, God gives all the specifics of what the Jewish people were to do in preparing their Passover lamb. Remember, they were to take the blood of that lamb and they were to shed it and spread the blood over the door. And when the death angel came by, those homes that were covered by the blood were spared from death and God's people would eventually be let go. You can do a fascinating side-by-side of all the requirements between the Passover lamb and Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and how they come together. I found at least seven ways that Jesus fulfilled that picture of the Lamb of God. In fact, I've made a little chart. Look at this as it comes up on your screen. For example, the Bible tells us that that lamb had to be without defect. That's in Exodus 12 and verse 5. Then the Bible says that that lamb had to be slain on the 14th day of Nisan. And in the killing of that lamb, there could be no broken bones. Well, look at Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus was sinless. In fact, when Pilate examined him, he said, I can find no fault in this man. Jesus was crucified on the very day that the Passover lambs were crucified, on the 14th day of Nisan. He was crucified in between the evenings, as the Bible says. No bones were broken in Jesus' body. In fact, he died before the Roman soldiers could come and bring that club to break his legs in John 19 and verse 33. Then the Bible continues by telling us all these marvelous things that were in the type of the Old Testament lamb. And they had been doing this for thousands and thousands of years to try and 
wash away the sin problem, but one man, God's son, the mediator between heaven and earth, God and man, was going to forever deal with the sin problem. Friend, aren't you glad today that when you come to the house of God, you don't have to bring your lamb with you because the lamb, his blood was already shed for you and me. He's the ultimate and final sacrifice. That's why when he was hanging on the cross, he could cry out, Tetelestai, it is finished. Man can't take away from it, and Satan can't erase it from the book. It's there. He has done it all. He is the Lamb of God. He's the reason why the the church sings in Revelation 5, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing. For you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Friend, I'm here today to tell you in 2022, a lot has changed. But one thing hasn't changed. It's still the blood. He's still the Son of God. He's still the Lamb of God. And if you come to Him, His blood will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Friend, if you're down today, if you're looking for hope, hey, don't look to the party of the donkey. Don't look to the party of the elephant. Do like John says, behold the Lamb. That's the message as we see him coming down the banks of the Jordan River. I think about that great story that was told a while back about Charles Spurgeon, that great Victorian era preacher, the Prince of Preachers in his day. It was 1859, and the church that Charles Spurgeon pastored, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, it had grown so much under his leadership that they had to build a brand new auditorium. Well, the story goes that while that auditorium was under construction, keep in mind these were the days before uh, microphones and voice magnification, so they had to build those buildings with natural acoustics. Well, the story goes that as that building was being put together, that Spurgeon went during its construction phase, and he walked around on the platform, on the podium, and uh, he was testing out the acoustics. And he stepped out on the edge of that massive platform and he raised his voice. And to what he thought was a completely empty church, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He just quoted John 129. Well, unknown to Spurgeon, up in the upper deck balconies of that great tabernacle, there was a workman who was busy up there in the rafters. And when he heard that big, booming voice from that great preacher, he thought it was as if the voice of God had opened up the heavens and spoke directly to him. And the story goes that that workman who was up there in the mezzanine, he fell under deep conviction as he heard Charles Spurgeon thunder forth, and he just started preaching to that empty auditorium. And little did Spurgeon know there was an audience of one. There was that man up there listening to every word. And the next Sunday rolled around and the invitation was given and that man came forward and he said, I want you to know that I was up there in the auditorium and when you were preaching, God saved me. I came under deep Holy Spirit conviction and I've come today to make a public profession in Jesus Christ. What a story, friend. That is the gospel right there. Behold the Lamb of God. I think uh, about the song that the primitives sang. Uh, I love the verse... The song is, He's the same God. 400 years in darkness, God spoke not a word. Till out of the wilderness, Brother John's voice was heard. He said, One is to come and bring the good news, and I am unworthy to unloosen his shoes. 
He's the same God who provided for Isaac that day. He's the same God who came down to a manger of hay. He's the same God. Oh, it makes me want to shout because he's the very same God that John preached about. He's done everything he said he would do, but come back and get me, and he'll do that too. That is the Messiah that John pointed to. He forgives our sins, and then notice this verse 30. He fills us with his spirit. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Of God. By anointing Jesus with the Holy Spirit, God the Father was not only identifying Jesus as Israel's Messiah, but he was also anointing Christ for his three and a half years of ministry that would come. Notice something. We don't see Jesus do any miracles until the baptism. And then at the baptism scene, when the third person of the Trinity comes on the second person of the Trinity and the first person of the Trinity God the Father says this is my son in whom I'm well pleased after that Jesus goes forward to heal the sick and cure blind eyes and raise the dead he was transformed he was equipped for ministry and likewise friend when we come to Christ we are filled with that same Holy Spirit And in fact, Acts 2.38 says this, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friend, churches are full of folks who've been dunked, sprinkled, confirmed, catechized, but they have not been filled with the Holy Spirit. And what that means is to say that they have not been truly born again. And that's how people can be religious and not be regenerate. But when we make Jesus Christ the Lord of our lives, we get a permanent roommate that moves in, the Holy Spirit. And when we allow the Holy Spirit access to every room, every closet, every cupboard, every corner of our lives, that's when we experience the power, the transformation, and the life change that only God can bring. Well, I'll finish you with this today. It's a classic story from a great preacher of many years ago named Harry Ironside. Harry Ironside was a great preacher of the historic Moody Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois. And he once told a story about going to a Texas ranch where they were raising sheep. And while he was there getting a tour of the ranch, he looked out in the pasture and he saw the oddest creature he'd ever laid eyes on. It appeared to be a lamb with two heads and eight legs. (laughs) I mean, it was the weirdest looking thing. And he tapped the rancher and he said, what is that thing over there? Was, was it born deformed? Why does that thing look like it has two heads and eight legs? Well, he began to explain. The rancher said this, well, sir, preacher, a few weeks ago, we had two mother ewes give birth. And we had a problem in that birth. One of those mother ewes died and one of the lambs was stillborn. And he said, unfortunately, 
that left us in quite a quandary because we had a you with no lamb and we had a lamb with no you, no mother. He said, we tried putting the leftover lamb and the leftover mother together in a pen to see if the mother would let the little lamb nurse, but she rejected the lamb because she did not recognize the lamb's scent. It wasn't her own. And so if that little lamb didn't nurse soon, preacher, he said that it would die. So we got an odd idea. We took the carcass of that little lamb that had died, and we skinned it. And we took that skin, that covering of that little lamb, and we wrapped the living lamb in the skin of that, and we took it to the mother, the mother you, and when she sniffed it, she immediately recognized the scent of her child, and she accepted that lamb and allowed it to nurse, and amazingly, you can see that that, that lamb is doing well today. Well, here's what Harry Ironside said about that. He said, I could not think of a more memorable picture of the gospel. On my own, in my own righteousness, God could not accept me by my works alone. But if I am covered in the sacrifice of another, if I am covered in the blood and the fleece of the Lamb of God, then I will be accepted and I will be invited to be a part of God's forever family. So that's our message today on this first Sunday of 2022. It's still about the Lamb of God. None of that has changed. And He's still a great Savior. And I pray that today, if you're watching and you haven't put your faith and trust in Him, that today you'll do that. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this time this morning. We thank You for this brief service we were able to have. We thank You for Your Word, which is so clear to us. And Lord, that maybe something was said today that would help us to better understand the gospel and baptism and who Jesus was and what he came to do. I pray for that one who's watching today, Lord, who's lost and doesn't know the, sa the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I pray that they would turn to you, Lord. I pray that they would repent of their sin and prepare for the coming of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would touch the afflicted and the sick in our church family, that you would bring healing, and, Lord, that you would... Bring us back again at the appointed hour on Wednesday as we look forward to all you're going to do this year. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.